Good morning, Harrison Bridge. So excited to see you again. Uh, so, uh, w- such a wonderful morning uh, to see 23 baptisms. I- I'll tell you this selfishly, I mentioned earlier, I was a student pastor here. 14 of those 23 baptisms across our campuses were student baptisms. So, that really makes me excited this morning. And so, hey, I mentioned it earlier. If that's your next step, man, what are you waiting for? We have another baptism date happening in October. Start that conversation today. Also, just a reminder about the Lawrence Interest Meeting tonight. Cannot emphasize that enough. Uh, even if you say, hey, I'm good at Harrison Bridge, we're glad you're good at Harrison Bridge. You can still go support and love on uh, the people down there and just see what God might do in the coming months there. Lastly, I want to mention to you before we hop into our topic today uh, is that next week, we are finishing up our marriage series, and the last topic is biblical intimacy. And we want to put this on your radar, especially for our families in the room. We want to be, here's the thing. We're going to be above reproach. We're going to be appropriate, but we want to be completely transparent with you and make sure you know about it beforehand. Just in case, if you have younger children, you might want to make some alternate uh, plans or whatever that needs to look like for you. You decide for your family. We just want to put it on the radar for you. We will be above reproach. We will be appropriate there. Nothing crazy there, but we will be talking about biblical intimacy next week. Actually, Pat will be leading that time for you. I will be hanging out with, as I said earlier, 129 middle schoolers up in Crowder's Ridge. And so uh, please, as you think of us during the weekend, be praying for us. But especially on Saturday night, they're going to hear the gospel every session, but Saturday night's where they're really going to be invited to respond there. And so we're praying for God to move in big ways. So just putting that on your radar. Today we're talking in the third part of our marriage series about fighting for your marriage, fighting for your marriage. Now, when we say that, if you're like me and you look at it from a culture standpoint, you say, well, I don't see a lot of fighting for marriages going on. I see a lot of fighting within marriages, right? We know there's a lot of fighting in marriages. Now, I know we're in the South on a Sunday morning, so a lot of us would give responses like this. Oh, we never fight in my marriage. One, you're lying, all right? Let's just go ahead and be honest here. Number two, I would say the absence of healthy conflict in a marriage is actually a troubling sign. Now, we, we want an absence of unhealthy fighting, of course. But I would say healthy marriages have disagreements. You have conflicts. And so we need to just go ahead and own up. There, that all of our marriages in here today, we have some amount of conflicts in there. Now, if you were to ask the world and our culture around us, how should we handle conflict? What it would say is something along the lines of, well, if the conflict is bad enough or if you're unhappy enough, to go back to what we said the first week in this series, well, you can file for divorce because of irreconcilable differences, because you just can't get along. We know that's not the answer. If you're like me, though, you're a millennial and you get a lot of your advice on social media, right, from Instagram Reels. Maybe y'all don't do that. But in my life, it's like, I mean, Big Brother is always listening, right? And so... I get all these targeted things. And so all the reels I see on Instagram are like marriage reels. And it's like, I send it to Melody because I can't say it to her because I'll get in trouble. But if another person says it on Instagram, I'm like, hey, they may have a point here. And so, yeah, let me just share with you some of the tips and tricks that are on here that I've seen. There's one guy in particular I follow. I can't share it for a second. I'll share it later. Uh, But here's the thing. Uh, The first tip of advice that I see on reels is this. And it goes along these lines here. It says, when she's finished scrolling, we're finished scrolling. Amen, I heard that out there. So when Melody sets her phone down, I throw my phone across the room, right? 
Because when she's finished, we're finished. I don't care what you're doing on your phone, we're finished. No, second thing we see is that when you sit down and you get comfortable, you might as well go ahead and get back up, husbands, because she's going to ask you to get something. A snack, water, whatever it may be, without fail there. And number three uh, that I've seen along these lines is this. If she starts off the sentence with, honey, I've been thinking, go ahead and put your shoes on. You're going to be doing something there. And lastly, and this one I, I really had to laugh at, it said there are two individuals in marriages. The first is a person who is incredibly frustrated almost all the time. The second is the husband there. And <laughs> not that I know that from, but as much as we laugh at those and we might say, hey, there's a little practical advice in there such as putting your phone down. At the end of the day, it's not the answer that we need when we talk about fighting for our marriages. We know that's not the right answer. It doesn't encapsulate all that we need to have there. And so we ask the questions we've asked with all the weeks in this marriage series. Well, what does the Lord say? What does the Bible say here? And we're going to be looking at Genesis 3. You can go and be flipping there. The verses will be on the screen. We'll be reading. In Genesis 3, it's a famous passage, an infamous passage, because Adam and Eve will eat of the fruit, and they will introduce sin into God's perfect creation. So to, to give us a little bit of a running start, God has created the whole universe in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. They're the same account, just told in a couple of different ways. One is the big picture view in Genesis 1. In Genesis 2, you have the microscopic view. And so what we're told in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is this. Is that God creates in six days, rests on the seventh. On the sixth day, he creates man and woman, Adam and Eve. And he calls them especially very good. He calls the rest of his, his creation good. And so what we see is that they are the pinnacle of his creation. They are not the purpose of his creation. We often get that twisted. The purpose of God's creation is his glory and his worship. The pinnacle of his creation, of all that he creates, is man and woman there. And in Genesis 2, what we're told as we, we hone in on that view, there, on that microscopic view of the conversation where God looks at Adam. He says, it's not good for man to be alone. So he creates Eve. He calls them two to be one there, but he gives them this command. And here's the command. He says, you can enjoy all of this creation. You can enjoy everything here except do not eat of this one tree. That's the only command that they have there. Yet if you know, like me, with small children in the home, you tell them not to do something, what are they going to do? That exact thing, right? So before we say, well, Adam and Eve messed this up, I would not have done that. Let's just be honest here. I would have simply ate of that tree, right? My heart would have driven me to that. I know myself well enough to know I would have made the same exact choice Adam and Eve did. And so he gives them this one, one command here. Do not eat of this tree, but you can enjoy the rest of creation. Man, what a sweet deal that was. Well, as we know, as we'll read, this actually was not what they chose to do. They chose to do the opposite. So look with me. We'll read about the fall. Genesis 3, we'll read verses 1 through 13. We'll hop into 15 and then 21, and we'll explain why later on. So look with me. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. There's the command. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of his fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. 
And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, That is God. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Hopping down to verse 15, the Lord is giving the consequences, the implications of them eating of the fruit. Verse 15 tells us this. He says, I will put enmity between you, that is Adam, and the woman, and between your offspring and the offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. He's speaking to the serpent there at the end. Verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And we'll, get, we'll unpack those last two verses in just a minute. But we see two things that really come to the forefront here when we talk about fighting for our marriage here today as we look to Genesis 3. The first is this. The first is overarching heading. You see it there on the screen. Trouble in marriage comes when, and the first point to that is, we stop listening to God. We stop listening to God. You see, as Genesis 3 opens up here, Eve is standing there in the garden, and the servant who we know as the deceiver, the liar, Satan, he approaches Eve. Now, we're not told that the serpent is Satan here in Genesis 3, but we can put the dots together with the rest of Scripture, especially in the New Testament, and know that this is Satan approaching Eve here. And he starts with a simple question. He says, did God really say? Now, notice this. We would expect the enemy of God, right, the enemy of all that is good, to look at Eve and say, God certainly didn't say this. Or to go with a full frontal assault and say, hey, let's just disobey God here, right? Of course, that's what an enemy of God would do. But yet, he takes a different route, and it's actually a really effective route, and we see the same playbook today. He doesn't go with a full frontal assault. He just simply invites her to a little deviation here, a little stepping out of what God has truly said. He said, did God really say you couldn't eat of that tree? Eve's response is 95% right. You'll notice I stopped in the middle of her response, and I said, there's the command. But then she said some more there, right? She gets the command, right? God said, I can't eat of that tree there. I can enjoy creation, but I can't eat of that tree. But she adds to the command of God. She said, I can't even touch it. I'll die. And we say, what is the big deal? Why is this such a big deal? Why, why does it even matter? Well, here's why. It cracks open the door when she takes that slight deviation for the enemy of God to take advantage of, to tempt Eve even more into sin there. You see, whenever we add or detract or change the Word of God, it is no longer the Word of God, no matter how we like to dress it up. And especially in our marriages today, as we talk about conflict, here's the temptation with this first point. That we look at the Word of God, and we know what the Word of God clearly says, but because I'm in a conflict, or I'm in an argument with my wife, or my husband, or whatever that may be for me, and I'm looking to my spouse here, I take the clear Word of God, and I slowly twist it a little bit. To what I need it to say, whatever is convenient in that moment. So I can weaponize scripture against my spouse. And we say we never do that. I think we do it far often than we care to admit. Whether it's to weaponize it against our spouse or to excuse some sin in our life or to make it seem a little less 
destructive there. We have the same tendency here. So Eve deviates from the clear word of God. And she said, well, he did say this, but he also said not to touch it or I'll die. We know God did not say that part of it. And the serpent says to her, you won't die. God just doesn't want you to be like him. Again, you see that door that's cracked open? He's going straight through it to her heart, to the desires of her heart here. And so verse 6, the woman saw that the tree was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. It was to be desired to make one wise. She thought, I can be like God here. And verse 7 tells us, or excuse me, verse 6, she took of his fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now here's my question every time I read this, even though I know the answer. Where is Adam in this? You know, we often joke around sometimes, or not often, I've heard the jokes before. Well, it was Eve's fault. Adam didn't do anything. Well, you're right, Adam didn't do anything. He should have been doing something. What we know from conservative scholarship is that Adam was right there. In fact, we hear this. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her. He was in the near vicinity. You can just see Adam watching this unfold. You can see Adam watching his wife step out of the clear command of God and to engage in destructive, sinful behavior. The most loving thing Adam could have done in that moment was to simply go over and say, hey, Eve, we're not going to do this and take the fruit out of her hand. But yet he was complicit. Yet he leaned into the sin. And even when he was offered it, he made no protest because he desired what his heart wanted. Not what God had clearly commanded. You see, this is where I believe a lot of the, the conflict and the fighting in our marriages that are unhealthy, this is where it finds its root. When we step out of the clear word of God, when we deviate from what God has clearly commanded, and we wonder why we get ourselves in such a predicament in our marriages. Because we take the clear word of God and we twist it just a little bit to be a little more convenient for us. Folks, it's a destructive path. Trouble in marriage comes when we stop listening to God, and it leads us to the second part here. Trouble comes in marriage when we turn on each other. You see, when we step out of the clear word of God, it's very easy for me then to look at my spouse as the enemy there. Look at Adam and Eve and their responses. Verse 12. God has called them to the carpet, if you will. They've hid from God. God knows exactly where they are. He's not unaware of what's happened. You'll notice this. I said it to the first couple of services here. God does not drive them out of their sin. He calls them out. He doesn't force Adam to tell them. He just calls them to account and says, Adam, what have you done? Now notice what Adam's first response is here. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit. Where's the responsibility there? Well, Adam's saying, well, it's not my responsibility. It's her fault. It's your fault, God. That's essentially what Adam is saying here. And we say, well, what does Eve say? Eve says, the serpent deceived me. There's all this blame shifting that is going around here. right? Nobody wants to take responsibility because they know that they've done something horribly wrong. They've done something wrong and nobody wants to take the responsibility. And we find the same temptation today in our marriages. Right? I'm in conflict. I'm in an argument with my spouse. And what happens? Well, I'm starting to lose said argument or I know I'm in the wrong. So what do I do? I pull up some garbage from the past. I say, hey, remember when you did this? None of us say that though, right? And I have to admit, I say that far more often than I care to admit. 
Well, you remember when you did this and we poisoned the well of a healthy conflict and we make it an unhealthy conflict there. You see, when we step out of the word of God, we view our spouse not as our teammate, but we view our spouse then as our enemy. And as we do that, we engage in destructive behavior that only tears down our marriages because it's your fault or it's their fault, never my fault. You want a recipe for disaster in your marriage? Step out of the word of God and blame your spouse for everything. That alone will set you up for failure in your marriage. So the question we ask is, is there any hope? What does this look like? Well, it leads us to the second heading here. Hope in marriage. Hope in marriage comes when, number one, we take ownership of our failures. So we've just talked about Adam and Eve shrinking back from taking that responsibility but now we see finally at the end of each of their responses, they actually own up to it. Notice Adam's response in verse 12. We said at the beginning, he says, hey, God, it's your fault. It's the woman's fault. Then at the end of verse 12, and I ate. Verse 13, the woman says, the serpent made me do it. And then at the end of verse 13, and I ate. Both of them finally arrive at the right place. They finally decide to take ownership of this. And why is this so key? Why is it so key that I own my failures? Because that's the only way healing can take place in a marriage. That's the only way you can move forward in a marriage. If you consistently double down and push the blame to somewhere else, you never will advance in your marriage. And in fact, you'll likely go backwards there. That's the only way it advances here. It's the only way healing can take place with God here is that Adam says, hey, actually I did it. Eve says, hey, actually I ate of the fruit too. We have to own the responsibility in our marriage. And here's what that does. It reminds me that I'm not the superman or if I'm the wife, I'm not the superwoman in my marriage that pretends like I've got everything together. It also reminds my spouse that I'm not the hero of our marriage. I'm not what they need me to be. I should not be the focal point of my marriage. And owning my failures reminds us of this that I'm not all I'm cracked up to be. I fall woefully short of the standard as a husband, as a father, as a follower of Jesus on a daily basis. And it's a reminder that there's got to be someone more. There's got to be something more here other than myself. So when I own my failures, that opens up the door for healing and reconciliation to take place there. Yet oftentimes my heart is tempted to shift that blame to somebody else. The only way we move the ball down the field here is to own our failures. And here's just to be completely transparent with you. I love to win. I love to win anything I'm doing. I have an unhealthy obsession with winning. I want my football teams to win. I, if you challenge me to throw a piece of paper in the garbage, I want to beat you in that. If you play me in fantasy football, I want to beat you in that. And even in arguing with Melody. Y'all say, no, the preacher wouldn't do that. Yeah, I love to get the last word in. It makes me feel like I win. But really, it's destructive. Because I will say mean things, and I'll say things that are untrue, that are completely false, just so I don't have to deal with the responsibility. But it's when I, I come to my spouse and I say, actually, I messed up there. Actually, I dropped the ball there. Actually, I fell short. Man, that's when healing can take place. That's when we're better together. Second thing we see for hope, hope in marriage comes when we lean into grace. We lean into grace. 
Because at the end of the day, if we lean into our failures, if we own our failures, then the question becomes, well, who can fix this? Because I'm not enough. My spouse is not enough. Who can fix this? This is why we read verse 15 and verse 21 a while ago. Verse 15 is in the midst of God doling out the consequences for sin. And it goes something along the lines of man will toil in the field by the sweat of his brow. Uh, women, one of the things that's named is that you'll have pain in childbirth there. And then we get to verse 15. And what we see, and I, I don't particularly like the way the ESV translates this, so some your translations may say it differently, but essentially what, the, what other versions say in verse 15 is this. The seed of the woman will come forth and crush the head of the serpent who has just deceived Eve. And what does this mean? Well, this is what we call the proto-evangelion. That is the first mention of the gospel. And it's a beautiful thing, and here's why. In the midst of Adam and Eve wrecking the perfect creation of God, inviting sin into the creation of God so that we still deal with the effects thousands of years later, God speaks hope into a hopeless situation. In the midst of handing out consequences, God says, but I'm coming and I'm going to fix it one day. And so here's what this speaks to here. Not just to the married couples in the room, though it speaks to you. But to the person in here who may not be married, who is not a Christian, and you sit in your sin, and you feel that fractured relationship, you feel the hopelessness, you feel the darkness, you feel the overwhelming nature of a sinful and a broken world. And you say, is there any hope? Because you and I both know and realize we are not enough. I don't have it in me to be what I need to be. Is there any hope? God says, yes, there is coming the seed of the woman who is none other than Jesus. And he is coming to crush the head of the serpent so that we can be redeemed and reconciled. If that's you in here today without Jesus, that's the move for you. Married or unmarried, whatever phase of life you sit in, that is the right response for you. It's to say, how do I know this, Jesus? Man, I'd love to start that conversation with you today. Find me afterwards. So we see that God speaks hope even when Adam and Eve do not deserve it. Hopping over the verse 21, God is now sending them out of the garden because God is perfect. He is righteous. He is holy. He cannot be in the presence of sin or imperfection or unrighteousness or profane things. To put it this way, God's right reaction to sin is to punish it. Therefore, he can't be in the presence of sin. And because Adam and Eve have invited sin into their lives, because they have chosen to follow their own hearts, they must leave the fellowship of the garden. To me, it's one of the saddest pictures that you see here. Our sin drives us out of the fellowship of God. But notice here what God does. On their way out, verse 21, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And we say, wait a second, didn't they clothe themselves a little while ago? They did. They took the fig leaves. They hastily tried to cover themselves from their shame and their nakedness there. But what we do know is a poor attempt to cover up what they had broken. It was not enough. It was not good enough. Yet what we find here is that God sees the inadequacy of their efforts. And he offers a better way, the right way. So what does he do? He provides skins for them. Where do these skins come from? Well, Adam and Eve got their leaves from a tree. God gets the skins from an animal that has to be killed. The shedding of blood. At this moment, the shedding of blood for the remission, temporary remission, covering of their sins here. God is willing to sacrifice so that his creatures, his creation can move forward even though they've messed it up. What an act of grace here. That on their way out, God says, hey, I'm going to kill this animal over here so that your sin can be covered. And it's pointing forward to the cross. 
to when Jesus was shed, his blood, the perfect spotless lamb, was shed his blood so that my sins can be covered. Something I do not deserve. Something none of us deserve. And so what is our response to that? Man, we lean into grace. We lean into the undeserved grace and mercy that God shows us here. First and foremost, as an individual that I know Jesus as my Savior, he has shed his blood, shed his grace on me. He has shown his mercy to me. And out of that, because I lean into that grace, I now look at my spouse and I show him or her the grace that Jesus has shown me. This is the call of the gospel here. That we would know the love of Jesus, we would know the hope of Jesus, we would know the grace and mercy of Jesus, and we would turn around and showcase it to all that we come into contact with. We say, but we don't, Corey, you don't know what my spouse has done. Corey, you don't know the argument we're in, and I don't. But what I do know is that if Jesus has saved you, his grace is greater. His grace is greater than whatever you face as a married couple. And as a believer, you are called to showcase that grace. It doesn't mean we excuse uh, consequences of behavior and this and that, but what it does mean is we see the bigger picture there. We lean into grace. So how do we take this on? Why, what should we exactly do in terms of responding? Well, three W's here that I think really helps us fight for our marriage instead of fighting one another. The first is this. I know who is in that marriage. I know who is in that conflict. To go back, as we said, Adam and Eve were created by God. You go to Genesis 127, 128, they were created in the image of God. Actually, in Genesis chapter 1, it's repeated three times there. Man and woman, he made in their image. In his image, he made them man and woman. He created. It's like God is saying, if you didn't get it the first time, I'm going to say it three times for you. That Adam and Eve are created in his image. They have the divine design approval upon them. And here's the newsflash, that did not end with them. Every single person on this earth, 8 billion people are created in the image of God. Even your worst enemy that you cannot stand is created in the image of God. So what does this mean? They carry with them value, divine value there. And it should drive how I respond to them, especially as we talk about marriage today with my spouse. So instead of viewing my spouse as the enemy, as someone I have to defeat in this argument or conflict, my spouse is not my enemy. Rather, my spouse is my teammate. We are one. And I'll tell you, this this will change how you talk to your spouse. This is not an opponent to defeat, but this is my teammate who we fight together. We fight together. It leads us to the second W. What? What are we fighting for? I believe this question would solve a lot of arguments, a lot of conflicts in our marriages. Because I said earlier, man, we think that every argument must be one that that we have to win. That I have to win this argument for the sake of my marriage. Do you really? As I said earlier, I've got an unhealthy obsession with winning. I've had to check my ego so many times. You see, when I'm far more concerned about winning an argument than the health of my marriage, man, that's going to end in a bad place. I think there are far more marriages that have ended because spouses have won arguments rather than caring about the health of their marriages. Does it really matter in the grand scheme of things? If it doesn't, man, put it on pause, cool cool a little bit, and come right back when cooler heads will prevail there. What are you fighting for? Does it advance the kingdom? Does it advance your marriage? Is it a threat to your marriage? Take care of those things. Yes, talk about those things. But take the right view there. What am I fighting for? 
to win an argument or for the sake and health of my marriage in light of Jesus? Lastly, remember where my hope comes from. Where my hope, where our hope in marriage is. Because let's be honest, in a room of this size, across three services, there are marriages that are hurting. There are marriages that are holding by a single thread that they are holding on to. There are marriages that are in the midst of a conflict. You don't know if you can see another day with your spouse. There are marriages that are in the valley, in the pit, wherever you may be. And you may say, Corey, I don't see a way forward with my spouse. I've tried and I've tried and I've tried. And I get it. But to go back to what we said earlier, you are not enough. Your spouse is not enough. Your hope is in Jesus. And what will move your marriage forward, even in the midst of that valley, is not you finding some silver bullet solution, but amen if you can find it. But rather, it's your marriage looking to Jesus and saying, we cannot find the solution in ourselves, but we look to you who gives greater grace. And we trust in that Jesus. That even when we can't find a solution, we're leaning in and we're trusting for another day that Jesus will show us the way. We're going to stay with it. We're going to lean in. Why? Because our marriages are to be an expression of the gospel to the world around us. What better way to showcase the gospel to your neighbors than to show your neighbors, even though you have conflict, even though you don't have the perfect marriage, you are showing the love and grace of Jesus no matter what to your spouse, even when they don't deserve it. That would be a wake-up call for our neighborhoods around us that, hey, there's something different here. That's the Jesus I need to know. You see, at the end of the day, marriages that are going to succeed, marriages that are going to be healthy, marriages that are going to fight together to fight for their marriages are marriages that find the love, truth, mercy, and grace of Jesus at their foundation. Successful marriages are grounded in the mercy and love of Jesus. Successful marriages are grounded in the grace of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this morning. I know for me how convicting even walking through this message was. That so many times I choose myself over my spouse. So many times I choose my want. So many times I choose my heart over your word. God, let that not be so. Lord, break us of those moments where we choose to stop listening to you. Where we choose to blame someone else. God, move in our lives to call us not to a troubled marriages, but to see hope that is found when we own our failures, when we lean into grace. God, I pray for the marriages that are hurting in here today, that they would be reminded that there is a God who gives greater grace. No matter what they're facing, no matter what they're contemplating, Lord, remind them there is a God who offers greater grace and a way forward. God, I pray for those in here who do not know you, that they would go back to Genesis 3.15. They would see in the midst of darkness and hopelessness, you showed us the gospel. That you would not leave us in that pit or that valley. That you would come and you would rescue us. Lord, let that person respond today by faith, by trusting in you. So Jesus, we ask that you would move during this time. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.